Welcome back to Conversations with the Week Cauldron, episode 21, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, chapters 24 through, I believe, 30. Yes, the White Tomb. And back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Ms. Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Hey, y'all. Good to be back with you. Good to have you two back. And so we're talking about this time, Sectum Sempra. The Seer Overhead, Chapter 25, 26, The Cave, 27, The Lightning Struck Tower, 28, Light of the Prince, 29, The Phoenix Lament, and 30, The White Tomb. I know that I had been texting with y'all, and I said that I really wanted to lay out some of the connections between the Cave of the Horcrux, where Dumbledore is so severely weakened, and um, epic portrayals of the underworld, but I also just wanted to um ask what were y'all interested in in this reading this final reading of book six this final reading before we we embark upon the final harry potter gosh it's such a bittersweet part of the series for me it's um i mean really sad of course but it's also the moment when you i think see harry become you know a, a man basically like sort of grows up in this moment I mean, I was personally interested in, um, I mean, I was crying um, when Dumbledore dies. Um, I'm really interested in um, how we read the scene, the scenes, excuse me, at the astronomy tower and in the chase afterwards. If we didn't know the end, like, had I not read all of the seventh book and learned kind of a different way of seeing things. I'm really interested in like what we make of Dumbledore's last words. Um, I'm really interested in the funeral scene um, and kind of how um, there's so much like a really overt discussion of what death means um, and like why if what if anything Harry gets out of this death that is um, different from what he learns from the deaths of his parents and the deaths of Cedric and Sirius. Like, what does this one do that, um, that the others don't, I suppose? Um, yeah, um, I'm also really interested in like how things change for him and Ginny just because um, I, I, I'm like really surprised at how persuaded I was by their like relatively mature affection for one another. Um, uh, just considering how young they are, but um, and especially their parting of ways. I'm, I'm really interested in that. So love to hear what else y'all have to say. Well, I think it'd be really useful to quote from those sections, the funeral scene and the death scene and the dying words. Um, I'd be interested in sharing and uh, looking and finding those and giving some direct comments uh, on them. But Wes, what, what did you think about that theme of death and how Harry was handling death and what, what this death was, how this death differed from the ones before? It seemed to have been getting increasingly personal. Of course, the first one was the most personal in many ways. It, yeah, well, it's, I think it's, it's interesting how this whole book, we've been hearing about these uh, in fairy, right? These reanimated corpses, like um, uh, they, they don't appear, they don't appear. And then finally, at the very end, there they are under the water. Um, and Dumbledore is completely fine with it, right? He's like, oh, yeah, there's some, there's some dead people in the water, but they won't hurt you, right? They're, they're just... They're just bodies. Um, and so I, I find that aspect of it really interesting, right? The difference between Dumbledore's attitude towards death and, uh, well, Harry's on the one hand, but also the Voldemort's, of course, is very striking. Um, and, and, and that attitude has been there since the very first book. I think we looked at this passage uh, recently <laughs> at, the, at the Norwest Con. It was when Dumbledore says, you know, death to the, to the well-ordered mind is just the next, you know, great adventure or, or something like that, right? It's, um, 
it's just a, a thing that he seems to not fear in the least. Um, and so for all that we see him, you know, weak in this moment, uh, in another way, he, he's, he seems prepared. Um, and yeah, that, that parting, um, I, I found it interesting. Like, I don't remember what happens in the seventh book really at all. Uh, so I'm, I'm very much in suspense here, <laughs> like how to go back and, and interpret some of this stuff that's happening. Um, but it, I do vaguely remember um, that we're going to go visit some people's homes, including the home of Harry's parents, right? Godric's Hollow, is that where he's, uh, you know, they, where, where they died? Um, so I'm, yeah, very interested how, you know, the death and the separation also brings him back full circle, right, to the place where he was uh, a, a little child. For sure. And just thinking about the name Godric's Hollow, that'll be interesting to think about in the context of Godric Gryffindor and how nowhere truly is safe. And I, I think that's part of what this death means, just to not touch on the personal note, because I do think that this is the most meaningful and most deeply personal death, because it's also a deeply symbolic death for Harry. It's uh, the death of the safe, magical world in which he's just a young boy sort of hero and has a paternal father protector figure. And so does the whole wizarding world. And when he dies, something, some like golden net of safety disappears from the world for all of wizarding kind, but especially for Harry, who had received so much special consideration and so many, uh, and so much protection, frankly, from Dumbledore, not just physical, but magical and mentorial and uh, even, even, you know, inquisitional, you know, or legally, he came to his defense of the Wisengamma at, at one time. And so that's gone from the wizarding world, from the opposition against Voldemort, and from Harry's life. And so it's as if he now has to rise up as, as an actual symbol of hope not just what Scrimjaw wants to use him as. So incidentally, he will manage to play that role to a T. Um, but he's going to have to become that for the world or the next generation. He's going to have to embody that which Dumbledore no longer embodies. And, and just, just to attach that to the underworld theme thing, mythologically, that is what happened. The old wise king is killed by an evil force. Um, or, you know, in Norse mythology, it's actually the king and the uh, um, Odin and um, Loki, the mischief god, who pull one over on people. So, you know, just because of the interplay of Snape and Dumbledore here, whether, whether Dumbledore is actually the old blind king who gets killed by the malevolent other half or not, I think is an open question. But let's say for the moment, from our understanding that he does. The old blind king is killed by the malevolent force, the star, the Lucifer, the Cain figure. And then the hero has to go down to the underworld and find the old wise or the old blind king and then bring him back to earth and give him a new form. And I think that's what we see happening with Harry. And I think that's also the symbolic way to interpret growing up and facing the actual dangers of the world, just to make a long story long. That's okay. Uh, I was curious about the, um, the descent element of it. Uh, how, in particular, how Harry is forced to um, keep Dumbledore drinking the potion, right? Um, I found that such a unsettling, you know, element of of the story there, where you know he he shouldn't be there in the first place, right? There should be an enchantment that keeps it um, to to limit it to one wizard, right? And we're told Harry doesn't even show up on the on the power meter there because <laughs> he's he's too young or something. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, he he forces Dumbledore door to to drink that potion to the to the dregs right um that that was uh so 
messed up i felt like uh and it goes on and on those <laughs> that part of the story um and then and then of course the brilliant you know nefarious uh use of the water right the only water that will work that won't be enchanted away is the water that will also you know wake the dead and and trigger their um attack on the island uh, just i found that so yeah messed up and so delightfully like awful uh, that whole sequence there i'm curious what you guys thought was going on there i mean alex you definitely um mentioned this in our pre-show texting um a while ago i suppose so maybe it has something to do with um some of the like inferno-esque quality of um this cave you know um it is um it's sort of like uh it has some elements of the inferno and in its descent, right? Like um, the things that, and the, the suffering that one must endure to, um, or rather for Harry that one must observe in order to learn something, um, you know, that having to like pass through a cave where there's some kind of um, like rite of passage um, rather than, you know, tossing a, you know, some kind of stop at, Cerberus, there's a, you know, there's a blood price that's required. He goes with a guide, etc. Um, it's hard not to see some of the, um, like Inferno, Aeneid, Book Six, ish um, overtones. Um, but yeah, the idea that that the thing um, that should save you is the thing that weakens you, right? Um, it's also when I, when when I phrase it like that. Um, you know, the Half-Blood Prince as a textbook, um, or the, the Half-Blood Prince's potions book, saved Harry and his aspirations to become, um, you know, an Auror. Um, and it also provided him with the skills to be able to get the Felix Felicis, um, to be able to get the memory. So in that sense, like using that book saves him in a way, but it also just deeply exposes him to Snape, um, forgetting what we learn about it later. But, um, and then finally, like, just this whole, this repeated theme of, like, the thing that allegedly makes one weak is the thing, I don't, I don't um, the thing that, that could save you, water, is the thing that also makes him weak is, to me, like, I thought it was sort of a symbol of, like, the physical and maybe, emotional sacrifice required um uh like to i don't know fulfill a, a duty or one's mission um in that sense like what dumbledore does sort of prefigures what harry will will have to do um i, I don't know I, i'm not sure what else you guys think that's really interesting focusing on the water motif because i for sure agree that there are the underworld tropes there as well as the inferno uh, tropes. I mean, you have to cross a body of water. That's something that's done in the Iliad book 24, famously compared to underworld scenes and the Odyssey as well in the Aeneid. You have to cross a lake, Acheron, uh, or rather uh, Ornos, or, or whatever it's called, but then you cross the Styx and the Cockatus too. When you're in there, there's a river crossing, and there's often a ferryman, so the fact that there's a self-ferrier, I think, is an interesting uh, alteration of the motif. You don't have a Charon. You don't have a Phlegias there. You have Dumbledore's sort of intelligence. So again, there's like something missing, whereas, whereas, hmm, whereas Harry is the number two that shouldn't be there. It's almost as if that therefore makes Dumbledore the psychopomp or the Charon, the person who crosses the river with him. And it's interesting then in crossing the river, which is also a metaphor for, you know, living a life. He, he is sort of going from the land of the living to the land of the dead. He will be irreversibly wounded here, um, even more grievously than when his hand was wounded, which has been such a focus of horror for, for Harry, sort of a Gilgamesh scene in Keto and the worm coming out of his eyes moment of just like the reality of um, finitude in this world. But I, I like what you said about the water hurting Dumbledore, Sarah, 
because it makes me think of Lisi and forgetting and you know a and remembering good times it makes me think also of the idea of this not being the water of life which is also a, a, an epithet for whiskey but being more like the water of wisdom which means contemplation of death and your own weakness and your own culpabilities in this world i do wonder whether what dumbledore is facing in these moments is his own personal hell is is um you know facing all the mistakes that he's made during the course of his life and that he has that this is sort of like a like a an atonement or a final like purification right and i do think it's deeply symbolic that they didn't use fire as the element to get out of this place that um it's a fire spell that gets rid of these in fairy Yeah, the I like that interpretation a lot that this is somehow forcing Dumbledore to see all of the bad things that he did or mistakes that he made or, or something like that. Um, maybe, you know, all the good things that he didn't do are included there too, right? Things he, he never got around to that he wasn't able to do for whatever reason. And, um, and it strikes me that that's the sort of thing that, you know, uh, would, would have a, a particularly powerful effect against somebody, the more good-hearted they are, right? They're, they're more susceptible to that sort of thing, having a, a terrible toll on, on them. Um, so it's, again, I, I think a really striking kind of um, setup here that we're shown. Uh, and then it's capped off by the fact that, that the Horcrux has already been taken, which is like the last oh. reveal. You know, that's, that's, that's the real, uh, the real, the real blow here, right? That this was all in vain. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I honestly don't remember who Rab is, <laughs> so I don't even know what to do with that. I, I think I remember, but man, that was a kick in the gut, wasn't it? And then it's all for nothing, and it's just so hard to argue against that line of reasoning with Harry in that moment because it does. It is a moment of nihilism, I feel like. When Dumbledore is dead, it's, it's, it's like, well, so now Voldemort wins, right? Um, and so there's not just that personal impact on Harry, but also just that getting, getting you know, the wind knocked out of you and then, and then to have his death seemingly be meaningless. And what does that say about, you know, one's ability to live a meaningful life because he's had this extraordinary and long life and then he dies for nothing. It just, what, it, what is the lesson there? Is it that at this moment, without knowing what we know from the future, what could we say? I, my, my, my take on this is, is one of, um, Harry being forced to watch, right? It's it's kind of placing him in this position of being able to see what's happening, but not being able to do anything about it, which I found really interesting, given that he has been such a you know heroic, active character all along. Not always like fully understanding maybe what was going on, but still doing the right thing in the right moment and, and it working out for him. Um, and so this sort of reverses that process where. Normally he saves the day and then we have the scene where he's in Dumbledore's office and things are sort of explained and laid out for us. Here it's reversed and we see, we don't see, right, what, what's going on in Dumbledore's mind here. We never find out, but we hear him instead talking to Malfoy on the, on the rooftop and kind of leveling with him. And it looks like it's about to work. Um, and if Harry were free, you know, maybe things would have gone differently. But, but for whatever reason, Dumbledore immobilizes him, hides him. Um, allows this to happen, it seems, um, perhaps saves Malfoy from, a, from an unforgivable curse, right? Um, and to all, yeah, appearances has um, sacrificed himself for nothing, really, um, and, and kind of needlessly. It, it's this awful sense of, um, uh, of a waste, of, of, a, of a thing that we had been sort of trained to expect, than being withheld and taken away and, and just not being there anymore. 
uh, it's, it's, it's desolation. Ooh, that's a good word. Um, desolation. I think, I think a couple things, um, to, um, pick up on what you said, Wes, to like make Harry watch and make him watch like petrified. Um, I think obviously petrified can mean, you know, turned into stone, but also just turned into fear, right? Paralyzed by fear. Um, and he's, you know, petrified with that petrificus totalis. Um, and he's forced to watch this thing. Um, you know, um, earlier in the story, um, when Harry and Dumbledore, I think it's earlier in this book, even, um, when Harry and Dumbledore are sort of having a, a tiff of, of, of sorts about, um, you know, Harry keeps coming back to the prophecy. The prophecy says this, the prophecy says that that. And Dumbledore says, like, stop putting so much stock in the prophecy. You would want to do this. You would want to go after him, whether or not you had ever heard the prophecy, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly where that is, but I want to say it's um, in the chapter where he and um, and Dumbledore discuss um, like the memory that he got from from Slughorn. Yeah. Um, yeah. The end of that. I think. Chapter. Yeah, and it's it's a chapter. I think it's the last um, one of the passages that we read last time, and um, you know, he he basically has this moment of very serious contemplation. I think it's the end of chapter twenty three. Um, where he, he thinks, you know, like, yeah, it matters how you face death, right? Um, it matters how, like, do you, do you, um, face it standing up, um, or do you face it being dragged into the arena? And, um, uh, you know, um, he, the last thing he wants to see um, is the death of his protector. I mean, I think it's in, in the, um, the chapter where they have the funeral, where it's during the eulogy where Harry just turns, I think it's like page 644 or something where it all sweeps over him, this dreadful truth more completely and undeniably than it had until now that he, Dumbledore was dead, gone. And to him, it's, it's compounded by the fact that the locket was a fake but um, he sees that, all, and this is on page 645, he saw very clearly as he sat there under the hot sun how people who cared about him had stood in front of him one by one, his mother, his father, his godfather, and finally Dumbledore, all determined to protect him. He could not let anybody else stand between him and Voldemort. He must abandon forever the illusion he ought to have lost at the age of one that the shelter of a parent's arms meant nothing could hurt him. There was no waking from his nightmare, no comforting whisper in the dark that he was safe, really, that it was all his imagination. The last and greatest of his protectors had died, and he was more alone um, than he had ever been before. And, and that's when he sees the phoenix, um, like for the last time, but one more time than he thought he would. And I think this, not knowing what comes next, right? Um, this is kind of, a, it has to be a turning point. Like options here are do nothing, run away from all of this, or stand up. Um, and like, I think this is something that like stand up for oneself and in between Voldemort and the rest of the wizarding world. Um, like this is maybe the greatest model. I have given you a model to follow. Um, like, I think I'm, I come back to something that I thought of actually, Wes, when we had our um, conversation at the Norwest Con about, like, what is the best way to learn something? Do you really learn it by sitting in Dumbledore's office and, you know, having a nice discussion or a lecture? Um, or do you learn something by experience, like by witness, right? Like, by watching somebody do something and being given a model to follow. Um, and I, I think 
obviously these descents into the afterlife are meant to be instructive for Dante or for Aeneas. Um, but uh, I, I can't help but think that Dumbledore <laughs> taking a underage wizard to go look for a Horcrux had to, and, and, at this, and had to have known that um, weakened as he already was, that this was maybe his last chance to teach him something. Um, I think we'll see in the seventh book that he has one more chance to teach them something that he wasn't able to teach. Um, and he teaches them from beyond the grave. And it's sort of, it's, it's in a sideways way that makes them work something out for themselves, um, as opposed to just like writing it down and making them memorize it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tie a number of things together here. I'm not sure I'm doing it clearly, but um, I think there is, there's like, his options are to witness this and be consumed by it or to witness it and be um, transformed by it. Um, there's really no, there's, I don't see a middle road for him. Um, maybe it's just the mark of character that he chooses the latter. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, I, I think the, this image of standing uh, is really, I mean, telling too, given that by the end there, Dumbledore, uh, he, he's slumping, right? He can't even really stand, um, but he's, he's still doing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? He's still doing the protective thing. He's already sort of set in place the protection. Um, the protection is lifted in the moment that he dies, right? And Harry doesn't even realize it right away um, because he's so shocked, right? Of course, uh, but but they're sort of tied together, right? He literally is protecting Harry with his life, um, and mm -hmm. and I find it so interesting how the uh, the emphasis there in that long sentence that that semicolon after it that is uh, he has to abandon the illusion, right? So so that learning, mm -hmm. yeah. Far from being like a memorization of some new fact, learning is is about shredding these illusions <laughs> that um, mm -hmm. you know might have served a purpose at one time or might have got given some kind of uh, solace or you know, but they 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 have to be uh, let go at a certain point, um, and that's what I mean by uh, I guess Harry sort of becoming a man in this part of the book. It's it's mm -hmm. he has to. Uh, acknowledge something that he was not ready to acknowledge until now this kind of like radical um just like impulse uh <laughs> that that he has been bequeathed right to, to to protect and to be that figure for himself um because there's no one else who can do it right he he even and i mean uh he wonders you know certain things like about Dumbledore's, you know, learning his, his kind of factual knowledge, like, you know, where did he learn Mermish? Or like, where did he get those little funny odd words that he would um, say during his commencement speeches or whatever, right? But like, but these are sort of, um, again, just just elements of a person that, that that's profoundly um, different from him. Like, that's not who Harry is. Mm -hmm. He's not you know, he'll get through his classes with the help of a, of a magic book. You know, he's not going to be like brilliant, but but in another way, he he has everything that he needs. He's always had it there. You know, and he just had to kind of uh, yeah. recollect. I think one of the things, yeah, in that in that um in the cave scene, one of the things that struck me, especially the, the, as I was listening, is how many like their suppositions. Dumbledore relies on that actually end up being right, right? Like, I think I have to do this, or I think this is probably the right thing. And, you know, I think it's really only the really wise or the really learned people who, who can sort of exist in that kind of, like, I'm not, to not totally certain, but I'm going to operate as if, you know, I've done all of my work, my research, and I've done all my, can kind of leap from point to point with great confidence in my, my own abilities because there's so much that he doesn't, he's not really certain of, but they still operate on, you know? Um, I think that's something that, that sort of struck me as like, oh man, this is like the last, he is really, he's sputtering, right? Like he's really at his limit 
and he's kind of, uh, Dumbledore is, he's operating just at that liminal space of what he knows and is certain of and what he's not quite certain of, which is why it's really interesting to think of that cave scene as kind of an, a really extended crossing over for him, right? Crossing over one river, crossing back over that river, but then um, like crossing quite literally into um, the space of his death. Like uh, it seems like all very liminal. If I could also just say that like, I'm, I'm kind of interested in what you guys saw. Um, if anything, that's like, I had a really like, not a hard time, but it was, it came to me many, many, many times as I was reading and listening to this, um, these last few chapters that how um, passion like um, uh, some of the scenes are with Dumbledore, like that scene with Malfoy on top of the astronomy tower to me had so many echoes of Jesus and Pilate, um, Pilate who just desperately does not want to kill um, kill Jesus and um, can't really are like they're not really having a conversation about the same things, and that the person who is um, uh, wandless or who is powerless is the one who is like verbally powerful, right? It is you who say that I am, right? Uh, you know, uh, I am. My kingdom is not of this world. Like when Dumbledore basically says, "It's not your mercy; it's my mercy that matters here." And and at the end, when he says, "Like please." I want, I thought of, you know, um, I thirst, um, it is finished. And, um, uh, right before they apparate back to Hogwarts, when Dumbledore says, I'm not worried, I'm with you. I sort of had, I, I imagined like a, a very weakened Christ, um, going with like Simon to, um, to the top of the hill. And then, this whole episode um, between um, the death and the the moment when the tomb catches flame, to me was just like a really extended Holy Saturday. You know, there's the dying, there's the waiting, and then there's the rising that you don't know is going to happen. Um, and just thinking about like what what kind of fear and agony and grief and confusion and um, lack of direction, all of the, the apostles and disciples must have felt, especially those most like closest to Jesus. Like, I don't know, this was a, to me, I see, and I know that like our common reading is like, oh, Harry Potter is Jesus-like. I really think that Harry is not. I think he's disciple-esque. Um, and like, you don't get all of the, you don't get all of the prescription. You kind of have to follow a model um, and hope that it, it gets you where you want to go or helps you cultivate the life you want to, you want to have. I think like your, your point was, this is him like forced into growing up. It's also like, it's interesting that it's not, he's not forced into growing up alone. Right. Um, even though he has to break up with Jenny, like, um, uh, there's something that there's something to how Hermione and Ron are kind of like, yeah, um, you know, we will be like by your side. Um, at, I think this is like page 651 or 652. Like we will, though his two friends are the, they are the last words of the book, right? Like he's going to have partners in doing this. Um, which to me is very like, uh, you know, where two or three are gathered. Um, more road to Emmaus type thing. Now, Wes, what do you think of that? I, I, I have to say, I, I very much like that, Sarah. I, yeah, I had not thought of it in that sort of scheme. Um, I thought of like more sort of personal things for me, like when I was a kid, the first funerals of people that I had to go to you know, the, those emotions that Harry feels there are, I think, very relatable. Um, but then to sort of put it in a, a religious framework, I think, helps to probably um, get at some of the more transcendent qualities 
of um, confronting death and and sort of like seeing the ways that those who are living on are going to carry on some of that that work and that memory uh, in community that that does strike me as a really uh, really relevant way to to read this and um, I I mean I think there's probably um, something going on there um, with Harry uh, having forgotten all about the wedding, right? He, um, he, he sort of has to be reminded of these things that like, you know, life does go on here. Um, he needs to kind of retain perspective. And, and that's part of, I think, what um, Ron and Hermione are, are able to provide for him. Because uh, he does sort of leap very quickly to, um, you know, the way to protect Ginny is to 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 break up with her to to leave leave her um, alone and to go off and do this sort of task. He he doesn't really consider um, that someone would want to go and do this with him, right? But then it um, and if I recall, that is sort of like a, a major source of conflict in the seventh book is like how they're all sort of working together uh, as a team and 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 all that, but. Um, but I think, uh, as we see it here, it's it sort of crystallizes around that um, that concept of the wedding as this kind of like counterweight to the funeral. Um, I found that kind of interesting. That that is, yeah, the note that the the book actually ends on it is actually more of a, a kind of hopeful one. Right, and I mean, I just with the idea of like the Christian resurrection of Christ and just more broadly mythologically, the idea that the, the old blind king, I guess Dumbledore would here be blind to the malice of Draco Malfoy and how does this happen underneath his nose? And then he's killed by this evil force. But then we have these elements of rebirth or resurrection, the, the burning of the, I didn't actually remember that one, the burning of the white tomb, the tomb is itself white, purity white, hope white, and um, and also the flight of the phoenix as well. There, there's that element of, or also Dionysian, of coming back, of something, something is not gone, but is going to return in some new way. Um, I think I'm just saying that I agree with your interpretation, Sarah, and also yours. Wes, when I say that, um, but well, first off, was it the case that uh, the white team catches on fire? It's, was it what the catch catches on fire? The the tomb sort of appears in a, a burst of white flames, so it's like yeah. the the fire is like the the spell that that makes the tomb happen seems like it's on 645 mm -hmm. yeah like the fire i think um like forges the tomb um and uh as soon as the fire vanishes there's a white marble tomb encasing his body in the table on which he had rested. Hmm. I'm looking at that now. Yeah, and for one heart-stopping moment that he saw a phoenix fly joyfully into the blue, but the next second the fire had vanished. And its place was a white marble tomb, encasing Dumbledore's body in the table on which he had rested. All right, good. So there's a direct connection between the white tomb and the flight of the phoenix. What what do you all do with that? Is that a symbol of some sort of rebirth? Is that itself a symbol of the the reembodiment of the archetype that Dumbledore embodied? Like, does Harry have to become what Dumbledore was? What was Dumbledore then? What is what does that mean? That just highly charged a uh, series of images. I mean, I guess we saw the phoenix, you know, rescue Harry down in the, the depths of the, the second book. 
Um, and it sort of has performed that function even for um, Dumbledore at times, right? It, it sort of like teleported him away from within Hogwarts, which is supposed to be impossible. So it sort of, I guess, to me represents a kind of magic that um, transcends like, uh, again, like discursive knowledge or something like that, like human, even human knowledge, maybe. So there, there is like this strong intimation of, of a divine force at work here. Um, of course, the, the immortality element of that. Um, and, and one that involves like sort of cyclical processes of, of birth and death and, and rebirth, right? So like the fire there. Um, I just, yeah, I think that the way that Dumbledore has been associated with the Phoenix all along is kind of part of his mystique, right? Like he does seem to know something that other people don't. He has this very unique sort of demon familiar that's associated with him. Um, <laughs> and and insofar as he's been able to, he's passed a lot of what, uh, along a lot of what he knows to Harry, but he certainly, you know, by no means like told him everything. And so, you know, that would have been a nice thing for Harry to have probably is like the help of Fox the Phoenix, but it's, it's just sort of built into the, the Dumbledore character. I think that, um, that Harry's aid is going to take other forms. It's going to be, you know, his friends, it's going to be these um, characters who care about him, like, uh, including, you know, Hagrid, who's, whose house catches on fire, right? Um, so there's, there's a lot of fire stuff being thrown around here. But, but yeah, that's kind of the, the take I have on that. What do you think, Alex? Well, I, uh, it's hard for me to uh, hard for me to top that. That sounded pretty good to me, hitting on the cyclical rebirth elements and the fact that so much of Dumbledore will be lost, or you know, there's so much that was unknown in him that is now just unknown, unknown. We don't even know the things that we've lost through losing Dumbledore, and I guess that adds also to the the sense of loss as well, because there seems to be some some element of hope lost too, because again, yeah, even though Fox is flying and not dead, Fox is definitely not hanging out with us and is definitely not close at hand. And so, I don't know, it, it makes me think that this, this sixth book is ending on a bit of a dark note. It, it actually kind of recalls to me the tone of the fourth book that ended on such a dark note too. And I mean, I, I suppose, these books, like the Aeneid, have each been ending in death recently. And uh, I know that we've sort of talked about that quite a bit already, but I mean, it is almost as if this book is like the Good Friday of the series, waiting for the Easter mm -hmm. of the seventh book. Like it is the dark night before the dawn. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I like. Uh, go for oh, it. Go ahead. I was just going to say I like the idea that that this this is sort of a series of dark nights. There's, um, and that uh, you know, I think the fourth and the fifth book also present us with a lot of darkness. Um, I thought maybe even more than the than the fourth book that this book echoed for me a lot of the second um mm. just um like going into a cave um where there's a lot of dark creatures um having to rescue someone um from that cave in a way i guess harry having to rescue jenny um uh and um in this case, in a way, having having to rescue Dumbledore, um, but you know the encounter with incredibly dark magic, um, the both the diary and the the real the real locket, but also the the entire like protection mechanism around the fake locket is part of the Horcrux um, system, um, and um, kind of at the end 
being faced with um, like a, a bit of a of a reckoning. There isn't the same kind of death at the end of of um, the second book, but I I thought there was some some sense in which there was a lot of there were there were some echoes there for me. Um, maybe even at the end when he rejects Scrimgeour's I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, I can't help but think of like Bill Nye from the movie. Um, but um, when he rejects his, you know, her, his request that Harry kind of uh, make appearances um, in support of the ministry, you know, I guess one of the things that reminded me of while I was already sort of thinking about the second book was how that book really deals with like, um, like the temptations towards being known for something um, that you maybe don't believe in or do, right? So like um, uh, Harry cultivating a reputation that he didn't earn as being heir of Slytherin or Gilderoy Lockhart um, basically trading in on success of other wizards by lying about and passing off their stories as his own. Um, I, I don't know. I just, um, I sort of saw a lot of connections also because they're both like the second and second to last. Um, and that moment at the end, in the end, in the graveyard scene, seems so pinnacle, seems like such a turning point that I sort of see things building out and echoing one another in this like chiasmic way. I wish that's not an original thought. It's something that um, I read about somewhere, but yeah, I'm curious what else what other connections y'all see? Yeah, I was just sort of thinking about um, the role here of um, Snape as this sort of counter figure to um, the kind of final battles that we've seen throughout. Um, this is the first one that Harry seems to be really powerless against. Uh, you know, he, he's always sort of found a way to, to triumph before. And it seems to me that the reason he can't win this fight is because Snape isn't trying to actually kill him, right? This is this is different. Um, something's going on mm. that Harry doesn't fully understand here and that Snape is not actually able to disclose at this time either. So it's like Harry's operating as the aggressor actually here the entire way, chasing Snape out and um, and everything he throws at him Snape just sort of parries effortlessly, it seems like uh, he almost gets overcome by his own rage, right? And 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 messes up and um and attacks Harry when he knows he he shouldn't. Um but but he sort of is uh chased away by the hippogriff at the last minute there. So uh it, it's a it's a really interesting, yeah, a chiasmus or just like a reversal of a lot of what we've seen, I I think. Um and is setting up for uh a very different, a, a big departure in the, in the seventh book. I really like that you note that Harry's role reversal here, like Aeneas first Turnus, spoiler alert, in book 12 of the Aeneid, uh, changing from himself a second Paris into a second Achilles, giving into his rage in that moment, that Harry is here become legion, devourer of worlds, you know, or has become anger, has become hate. As we've seen, again, this building in his role, and it, it, he's so overcome by emotion, it's all too easy for Snape uh, to use um, occlumency or legitimacy to defeat him. You know, he's, he's all the more professorial in this quote-unquote duel with Harry than ever. He's untouchable. And except by his own conceit, being called a coward really still gets at him, gets under his skin. I, I wonder what that means. And, you know, that actually draws a parallel between him and Sirius to me. Because Sirius also hated that sort of thing and hated mm. uh, that claim by Snape that he, you know, he was safe hanging out in that house all the time, even though, you know, obviously... Obviously, um, he did not like that. Sirius did not like that one bit. Um, yeah. 
I mean, this is something we'll talk about as we read the seventh book for sure, but I love that idea that, or that connection that you made, Alex, that, um, that this scene with Snape in, on the one hand, not knowing the events of the seventh book, he's just this, like, he's emerged as this incredible villain, right? He has feet a fly now. And I, I think, is that right? I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, <laughs> but, uh, he, he emerges as just like heartless, everything that, um, you know, we thought has been confirmed. And yet he has those qualities that resemble Furious. Um, he's incredibly powerful. Um, he is uh, seemingly in control, dominating Harry kind of with every, with every attempt. And I, I sometimes wondered, you know, is there something about Sirius that's like, not Sirius, excuse me, about uh, Snape that's like envious, right? That there's like a, um, a like if, if something were different in his life, would he have been friends with those guys? Did he want, did a part of him want to be friends with those guys? Um, I think we'll learn more about that in the next book, but um, yeah, no, I'm, I've, I've never really thought about how Harry is kind of like in a dueling position because he's always, I mean, for the most part, he's always been at a disadvantage, right? He's been dueling a basilisk or Voldemort embodying Quirrell, Voldemort, or, you know, um, in some ways he's been at a disadvantage, but here he doesn't, he seems to be at a different kind of disadvantage, right? He like, um, I, like his desire to hurt is, uh, is, uh, that's new, I think, um, maybe worth exploring, um, what that means given what you said, Wes, about how everything is about to fall apart for him, right? And he's going to be at the end of this book kind of more at sea and without, without, um, a sense of purpose like the seventh book is going to be such a departure for him be interesting to figure out like is this you know him finally being like reduced to the things that he the things that he hates you know in other people I don't, I'm not sure yeah I think one interesting image of that is is the whole um sectum sempra uh hex or whatever like he uses it not knowing what it does at first and he feels pretty bad about it and is justly punished and has to, you know, read about his dad's old um, run-ins with uh, the caretaker of the school and all this stuff, right? Um, but in that moment, um, Snape has a, a weirdly Phoenix-esque thing where he sort of sings as he uh, heals the wounds. And, and I found that really like a a strange and kind of haunting little detail there that I think, yeah, goes along with what you're saying. Like there's, there's this sweetness to Snape that's, that's buried under all of the bitter. Um, there's this quality where he's the one who knows the Sectum Semper spell so well that he knows the way to, to heal the, the, the slash wounds that it causes um, that no one else seems to be able to do. Um, and that's, that's the thing that, you know, Harry's rage against him sort of prevents him from, from, learning from right in that critical you know uh lost time of all his detentions when he could be out you know hanging out with Ginny and and his friends and all that instead he's doing sort of menial time wasting tasks he he never you know attempts to ask snape even like what was that spell that healed draco's um wounds you know like they, they just never go there um and and i think that's you know it's not as sad as losing Dumbledore, of course, but it is another kind of loss, a lost opportunity. Um, one that, again, I think makes Snape one of the more interesting characters uh, in the series, um, up there with, with Neville. And Neville and Luna, you know, going to the <laughs> funeral together is just so darn cute. Well, that makes me think that what the key to Snape's genius is, is that he uses his, his wide variety of hurtful memories to learn from. And if you take the idea of Sectum Sempra as like a particularly vicious insult that cuts in subtle ways that some people can't, that many people can't see, 
but can bleed you out. Somebody who's been subjected to like an overly critical tongue over time might therefore, if they, you know, come to understand the wounds that they sustained from someone else, uh, how to heal those wounds in a way that other people can't because they can't even see them. And, you know, the vulnerable sonator is interesting because it's wound heal, you know, let thy wounds be healed or wounds heal thyself. You know, it, that, that's more of a Greek way of translating it, but it is in the passive voice in Latin. Uh, wounds be healed, you know, or wounds heal thyself in the middle, if you translate it like that, or who wounds be, you know, yeah, and it lets him be healed. In any case, it's, it's interesting because he does have such a variety of interesting powers, like he can also create the Wolfsbane potion, and it, it, it's almost like he, what he understands about dark wizards or what it means to be a dark wizard is to really understand the things that cause people pain in the world, particularly because of his own subjection to a lot of it. And that, that that has been used to make him, you know, a great wizard. But um but precisely because of the pain that he suffered. And that he does seem to be a little bit different from Harry in that respect, or does he? Yeah, I think um there's something about um, the way that, again, like the way that what we know thus far of, of his background um, is like, it seems as though Snape, when he was a kid, was, um, you know, he had a lot stacked up against him, right? Um, but he didn't really have a Dumbledore. It doesn't really seem like he had um, a protector. Um, you know, we'll find out what his life was like. So it also doesn't really seem like he had a, a Ron and Hermione, at least for all seven years of school. Um, and that uh, there's, yeah, I, I love that idea that like maybe Snape is capable of understanding and, and kind of moving amongst both of these worlds in a way that people don't, at least in the, in the dark one, um, of, of dark because he like is so it, he is wounded in such a way that like one way to deal with those wounds is to wound other people and one way is to heal other people and um, I think you know from from right now in the story it looks like he is a he's like the the kind who's um, who's oppression has yielded an oppressor right or who's um who's like le like history of experiencing unkindness has yielded somebody who's vengeful except when he when we know that he is incredibly like in control and powerful and he doesn't really seem to be operating like you said except for that one moment where he gets really upset that harry calls him a coward um you know, I guess, again, like some of this will make sense when we get to my favorite chapter, but, um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think that's, that's, I'm super intrigued by this. It's, it's really hard for me to read this book, this particular part of the book, knowing what I know and remember from the seventh. Um, and so I'm, I've been really I'm, I'm glad to get that, the chance to think about it without that trying to like bear on me, you know? Yes, it's, it's much easier when one forgets everything that happens in the seventh book. <laughs> fair, 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 fair. Well, we better get to reading it so that we can forget it all over again. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and um, hopefully, you know, give our token to metempsychosis through this podcast element and uh, move on to that Lord of the Rings thing. And I, I suppose if, if we're going next week and we're starting with seven I, and we can, we can text about, unless one of you has the book open right now, which chapters we want to, um, we want to read through. Um, I just downloaded on audible today. Uh, two things though, I guess one is yeah, Miss Sarah Miller, Sarah, you, uh, you alerted me, to an interesting sort of debate 
on going on Audible about which Harry, who reads Harry Potter better, uh, Jim Dale or or um, Stephen Fry? What was it? And I thought that that was incredible. But also by next. Yeah, week, apparently. Yeah, go on. Apparently, if you download the book in Britain, you get Stephen Fry, and if you download the book in America, you get Jim Dale. And um, I think I did a, I only read that one article that I shared with you, um, but it sounds like their their renderings are quite different, and maybe um, interesting to think about. Not that we have time to like go back and listen to all seven books. Um, again but anyway just uh not in a week no certainly (laughs) not but it's something to think about i think um is uh what you know how does the medium affect your experience of the story of course that's always something to think about but and a good excuse to go to britain just to download all those audible books (laughs) amen brother All right, um, and by next week we might be able to unveil uh, some of the particulars of our upcoming summer Shakespeare project. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, and that'll be yay, yay. Yeah, yeah, and so exciting things coming up for all of us, including more British literature, <laughs> because who can get enough? All right, y'all. Bottoms up. Cheers. Till next time. Cheers, Cheers, y'all. Clink.